Welcome, all of you wine and true crime lovers. I'm Brandy. And I'm Chris. And this is Texas Wine and True Crime. Thank you for being here, friends, for this week's episode. Hey, Chris. Hey, Brandy. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing fantastic and excellent. Fantastic. Babe, we've got a few announcements before we, we jump into today's episode. Just a few? Just a few. Just a few. I won't take too long. Okay. We have a new Patreon member to welcome, Elisa Espinosa. Welcome, Elisa. Uh, welcome, Elisa, and thank you so much for joining our Patreon family. Babe, next weekend, we will be emceeing an event at Edge of the Lake Vineyard. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be very, very cool. It is going to be cool. And there's going to be a band, and we're emceeing, so we're not going to be on the mic the whole time. We're going to kind of inter intertwine with the band and uh, talk about the vendors, talk about the food trucks, talk about... Talk about the wine. Talk about the wine, the bourbon barrel Tempranillo, the reason people are coming out to Edge of the Lake on the 15th. So, you know, that's one of our favorites. Well, they're, they're coming out to see the, yeah, the, the vineyard and the wonderful people that run it as yes, well. Yes, they are. So come see us Saturday, April 15th. Uh, like I said, food trucks, it's from one to seven. So plenty of time to come out and say hi. Uh, we'll see you next week, Edge of the Lake. Tonight, honey, we are sipping on Portisol by Adega Venho. Yes, delicious. So delicious. Uh, I can't wait to share all of that with our listeners during our wine recess, and you can tell them what you paired with tonight's wine. I will. I will. All right, honey, are you ready to jump into this week's case? Let's jump in. All right, friends, it's time to sip some wine and talk some crime. Okay, Chris, today's episode is going to be covering a few cases. Um, a couple of these cases we have covered on our show. The others, these are cases that I am currently following. And, you know, they weigh, they weigh a little bit on my mind. I think about these cases. Um, I know people listening in to this episode will be familiar with these, and they're probably following them as well. So I will be sharing some details about each of these cases, some updates, uh, just to kind of bring people up to speed on a few things going on in, in the land of true crime. Okay? okay. Catching everybody up. That's right. All right. So let's start with uh, Deborah Sue Williamson case out of Lubbock, Texas. We had the privilege of having Jennifer Buchholz on the show to discuss what she and her true crime partner, George Jarrett, uncovered in Debbie's case. If you haven't listened to that episode, please do. Jennifer and George pour their heart, their soul, and knowledge into finding Debbie's killer. They wrote a book about this case. Chris, we know they returned to Lubbock to interview people that were interviewed once or twice back in 1975 yes. when Debbie's murder occurred. Um, and they found out some pretty interesting information. Now, honey, I feel like when we see these cases that have gone unsolved for so many years, other people start to get involved. So you have, um, you know, if, if the like police... A, like a crowdsourcing? Yeah, like if the police haven't solved a case after this long, 46 years since Debbie was murdered, you have podcasters, you have web sleuths, true crime aficionados, experts and authors like Jennifer and George. People start to jump in and try to figure out who committed these crimes. And what happened? Now, what Jennifer and George uncovered and the interviews they did, the questions they asked, the alibis, the lies, the truths, everything they uncovered, Chris, they handed over to Lubbock PD. All of their hard work. Um, 
about a year ago, police ran DNA in Debbie's case. A year ago. 2022, Chris, that was the very first time they tested anything with the DNA. Wonder why it took that long. There's a lot of us asking that question. Uh, Here is what we don't know, honey. What they tested and the results of that test. It's not public record at the moment. Well, I mean, I guess if it's, um, you know, leading to a potential subject, you know, suspect. Mm -hmm. They don't want to show their cards. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are the things I don't know. But here is what, what I do know. In Friends in Lubbock and surrounding areas, this is definitely a call of action for you. Neither the PD or DA will return any phone calls in regard to the update on this case to Jennifer or to George Jared. Chris, they both went to the DA and said, hey, listen, we will hand over this information we've uncovered in her case. Chris, they rejected their offer. By the way, these two have already had a hand in solving a crime, another murder case, Rebecca Gould's case. So there is already credibility there, and not to mention they are handing over the information. They aren't trying to withhold anything. They're not trying to be heroes. They want to work with law enforcement to solve this very solvable case. But when it's uncovered that police only talk to these people once or twice in 46 years, you have to ask yourself, Chris, why? Why hasn't more been done? Why would you not use every resource possible to bring justice in this case? It's been so long. Mistakes were made. Evidence is questionable at best. And this case is going to be solved by somebody coming forward. Well, I mean, they may not want egg on their face, perhaps, uh, that they've dropped the ball after all this time. Uh, And here's the call to action to, to people listening. The call to action is to call, email, write letters, leave messages for your local local lawmakers, your law enforcement, the DA's office in Lubbock. Um, I spoke to Jennifer. There has already been a big push and initiative around this, Chris, to encourage them to get in touch with these folks, to get in touch with Jennifer and George, and let's get this case solved. They have uncovered some some great details. Not everything they have, they put in that book. They have given everything to Lubbock PD. This case just needs to be solved. They need. We need to be working together on this. Um, Debbie's murder was beyond personal. Her body is found on the ground near the back door. She had been stabbed 17 times, and most of that attack took place under the carport, and blood evidence showed she had been pulled out from underneath the carport, Chris, and back towards the back porch underneath the light. So why? Why would a perpetrator move her from a carport into open area where people could see more, even though it was dark outside? In the carport, there's, it's, it's very dark and no one's in there, right? So then we know the perp either wanted a shock factor when she was found or he wanted her to know who was doing this to her at the time. Or... He knew her husband, Doug Williamson, parked under the carport, and he would have not found Debbie's body on the driver's side of her car. He would have totally missed her based on where their cars are typically parked. So it's still kind of a mystery on why she was moved. Um, This case needs to be solved. We need Lubbock PD to go back and talk to these people. 
There were a few that refused Chris to speak to Jennifer and George. And these individuals were known to have seen Debbie at least 24 to 48 hours before her murder. They need to be re-interviewed. I would agree with that. Uh, People forget sometimes, Chris, what they said 46 years ago. Maybe where they were, who they were with, what they were doing. It's hard to, uh, you know, if someone made up a story or lied about something so long ago, they may have forget they lied or or what they actually said about it. So I definitely think um, this is something that they need to uh, they need to do. They need to get there and reinvestigate. Uh, the second update I have is on the case of Linda Malcolm. We had Jennifer and George, Chris, again, on our show to discuss this case. This is actually their active investigation that they have going on. So please go back and check that one out. Linda's charred remains were found in her Port Orchard, Washington home on April 20th, 2008. Linda had been stabbed and the house Chris lit on fire to conceal the crime. She had been stabbed 18 times which shows overkill, just like um, what we saw in um, in Deborah's case. And then they tried to cover up the crime with a fire. Again, overkill. You have, you've already killed her. But because of this, police believe Linda's murder um, was by someone she knew and that this is not considered a random crime. Chris, we always say looking into what a victim was saying or doing 24 to 48 hours before they're they're murdered can give a lot of insight into their mindset, who Who they were with. with. Yeah, Yeah, who they were with. Were they under any stress? Um, And so that's why it's important for for them to talk to the closest people to the victim. Exactly. And looking at the phone as well, too. I think especially in this day and age, that's a big... um, a big player in to see where, where people are at. Yeah, there were, um, again, I remember when we had Jennifer and, and George on the show, they talked about a few things that were found in the trash can. It looked like that she probably had someone over, maybe was having dinner. Again, she was moving the next day. Like within those next few days, she was moving. Um, not far away, but she was moving. So you wonder like some of these instances, um, you know, does that move have anything to do with what happened to her? You know, I don't know. Um, but they are they are looking into um, into this case. They're actually the, well, they're going down to Port Orchard. They're getting uh, they're meeting with Linda's four siblings to commemorate the 15th anniversary of her murder. Um, they'll be sitting down with police to discuss this case. They're doing a few public events. They're conducting more interviews. So, Chris, I like the direction this is moving in. You have participation from the family. You have participation from law enforcement. Um, you know, everyone is involved in moving this in the right direction. Uh, I definitely re- recommend, again, listening to the interview that we did with Jennifer and George on this case on our podcast. Are they announcing on their social media that they're going there as well? Yes. So they are also on, um, there is a group called the unsolved murder of Linda Malcolm and same with Deborah Sue Williamson. So they run both of these groups. They also have a podcast break the case. And this whole season is going to be about Linda Malcolm's murder. Um, So definitely um, go and check that out friends. All right, honey, it's now time for a wine recess. A wine recess it is time for. <laughs> it is a time. Now, you made a delicious, as always, dish um, paired with this 
delicious wine that we um, were able to that we're able to enjoy. So, um, do you want to tell us about the food, and then I'll chat about the wine a bit? Absolutely. Great. So I um, I made a beef tenderloin which I called a garlic and pepper crusted beef tenderloin along with a mushroom and kind of a wine and butter sauce. But I used the wine that we were drinking um, just to kind of, um, you know, kick it up a notch, I guess, so to speak. Yes. Uh, I I told you I love that. Yeah, I thought it was good. (laughs) Um, It is. It's good. called for something and I just figured I would just use that and it worked. So I got lucky and it made some uh, roasted garlic um, and rosemary potatoes, and then finally some creamed spinach, just to, to have some greens because we all need some greens in our life. I need some greens, but I thought it came out pretty nicely. Thank was, you, Aldi, for having the sale on beef tenderloin this week. Yes, Aldi. We actually um, we love Aldi a lot. You know, I think people are like hit or miss on it, but we make most of these amazing dishes from stuff from Aldi. So, And our kid ate it just because we told her it was steak. And I know if I would have said beef tenderloin, she would have said no. So the kid even liked it. So oh, man. It that, was good. That is always And you make the best homemade mashed potatoes for kids, I just have to say. I yeah, even she didn't eat the garlic rosemary potatoes. I had to, did have to make a second batch of potatoes. <laughs> mashed potatoes. Uh, it was so good, hon. And we got to drink Portisol of, from Adega Venho with this delicious meal. Now, this is out Adega Venho. Uh, the foundation of great wine is great fruit. What is being created at the Bilger Family Estate Vineyard is the cornerstone of the family winery called Adega Venho. So that connection with the land and commitment to sustainable agriculture is the key factor in crafting great wines. Um, Chris, this Portisol has become an award-winning mainstay of the D- Adega Venho's yearly wine lineup. The Bilger family favorite blends, um, they they blend their two favorites, which um, is Tempranillo and Mouverdre. So that's what we're drinking, babe. Two yes. of our personal favorites. I thought it was a very good wine, though. Kind of a, God, kind so of a piquant bouquet, a little spice on it. Um, great finish. I think it went really well with the with the beef dish. And um, yeah, it, did. it worked. It was so good. Um, it, you can also have it with, like you mentioned, steak, meats, grilled chicken. All of that works. 50% Tempranillo, 50% Moudret Verdre. Thank you so much, Texas Wine Club, for sending us this beautiful wine. Friends, you get 25% off on your subscription order. All you have to do is type in crime at checkout. If you're a Patreon member, you get $40 off. So head over to TXWine.com. That's TXWine.com. Pop in the appropriate code and get the best of the best Texas wine sent right to your door. Go say hello and tell them your friends at Texas Wine and True Crime sent you. Yes, we've had a great, great start with our wine club. So. Yes, we have. Two for two. Right? <laughs> two for two. Thank you, Adega Venho. It was delicious. We cannot wait to come and visit you in a beautiful wine country. Um, so thank you again, friends. All right, babe. Are you ready to hop back into the case? Let's hop. It's close Cases. to Easter. It's getting Cases. close to Easter. It is getting close to Easter. Hop, hop, hop. All right. The next case I want to mention is the Adnan Syed case. Now, I know a lot of people follow this story, and there is an update. So Adnan Sayed was convicted in 2000 of kidnapping and murdering his then ex-girlfriend at the time, 
Ha Min Lee. Now, Lee had been missing for four weeks, Chris, before her body was found in Leakin Park in Baltimore, Maryland. So this comes out of Baltimore. She had been strangled to death. Um, people then received a tip to look into Syed as the suspect in this crime. So, Chris, they subpoena his phone records. They contact the girl Ednon spoke to the most on the day Lee disappeared. And that girl, Jen Pusateri, tells police that Adnan's friend, Jay Wilds, told her Adnan had killed Lee. On the day Lee was last seen, he was with Jay Wilds. So Adnan Syed and Jay Wilds um, are said to have been together on the on the day Lee disappears about 3.30 in the afternoon after school and is never seen and then found four weeks later. Wilds ends up signing a plea deal, Chris, admitting to helping Syed dispose of, of Lee's body. Now, Chris, this is a fascinating case. You have a girl that comes from a very strict family, and so does Syed. Lee kept a diary in which she references her breakup with Syed multiple times and having a crush on someone named Dawn. Now, even though they were broken up, the two still seem to be friends and be on speaking terms, even though Lee referenced in her diary that Adnan was kind of cold to her since the breakup, which, you know. These are 17-year-old high school kids, right? Yes. Um, and, and, and that's the thing. What, you know, you have to, I think, I mean, this guy has spent more than two decades in prison, okay? And this happened when they were 17 years old. And they have a breakup, I believe, twice. Um, but, you know, you have, you have someone who verbally comes out and says that they helped hide the body, and, and, you know, we always talk about these confessions, false confessions. So if Adnan, if Adnan is, is innocent, then that means this guy lied and said that he inside did, did a plea deal. Did he get time with his plea deal? So I don't, I don't know. I wasn't going to cover the, like the specifics of this case, um, but I don't know if he spent any time. I know he took the plea deal. But he's definitely not in prison. I can tell you that. Two decades later, this guy's not in prison. Um, I mean, why, I'm wondering if admit, he signed the plea deal and then testified against him. So I'm gonna, I can go back and, why and check do you admit that out. That? That's what I mean. But I don't know. What do you have to gain? Like that's there's not even a playing a prank on somebody. Okay, but but okay, but here's the thing about this case. Adnan was found guilty, right, of this crime in which he has always maintained his innocence. In 2022, just this past September, Syed's conviction was overturned and he was released from prison, Chris. But just this last week, a Maryland court reinstated his conviction. The appellate court said the lower court had violated the rights of the victim's brother, Young Lee, to attend a key September hearing, and Chris, this is the same hearing where Syed's conviction was overturned, which led to his release. So this was based on new DNA evidence showing Adnan was not responsible for Lee's death. And Chris, the state, the state prosecution office, state attorneys, um, this is why he was released. Because they say that the DNA shows that he wasn't involved. Mr. Lee did attend this hearing. He just attended it over Zoom. He, so he virtually attended this, but the problem is that 
he and his lawyers and the family say that they didn't give him enough notice to travel there in person to give the pro, you know to give and basically giving him the proper chance to be heard to be heard in court. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean this this really is just such a fascinating case. Um, Adnan will have another hearing, but his attorneys are confident he will remain a free man. Lee's family has said if Adnan is not the person responsible for her murder, they want him freed. I mean, why would they want to keep an innocent man in prison? Um, But I can also understand them kind of thinking, you know, did they get this right the first time? Are we confident it's not him? And you have a a written confession from someone and a verbal confession, not from just one person, but they talked to the girl, too, and the girl said that Jay Wilds is the one who told her that Adnan had killed Lee. Well, I know. I'm just saying he took a plea deal. You still, just because he didn't do time, he, he may still have a felony on his record. Why would you risk that? I mean, if it wasn't, if, it just seems like a strange thing to lie about. Right, but how many false confessions do do investigators get uh, Chris they're not they're not super common but they do happen a- and I don't know is it is it oh, you're I mean, a child he's a 17 year old kid he was co you're suggesting he was like coerced or something or um well the Adnan's team believes that he was fed information about the murders um before he got on the stand and, and to testify against Adnan. You never know. It is Baltimore. <laughs> oh, you're one of your favorite shows is from Baltimore, right? Wasn't that cop show? The wire. Oh God, that was such a good, um, that was a really good show. Everybody should watch that. Everybody should watch it. Everybody should watch it. All right. Well, um, this case is absolutely fascinating, but you know what? They need to focus on the evidence. It is, you know, like I said, it's very uncommon for a conviction to be overturned first. It takes some solid evidence, Chris, some solid evidence to make that happen, especially if someone has been in prison for two decades for a crime. So if the DNA does not match Adnan and other pieces of evidence point to somewhere else, then it's time to go back into the files, start focusing their efforts on finding the real killer of Heyman Lee. Um, Because if he didn't do it, then he didn't do it. But if he did, you know, I don't know. I, I think a part of it, I mean... I would say that Jay Wilde's, um, his testimony and his confession is what is why Adnan is, was sitting in prison. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- that's very powerful for someone to come forward and say that. So um, we will keep everyone updated. It, it, please be following this. Um, he will get another hearing. They will decide, Chris, really whether to go to go through again and charge him with this murder and and put him back in prison, or will he stay a free man? I mean, I don't know. What what this tells us is that he's getting in. They're doing another hearing, you know. So, all right. So the last case um, for tonight that I want to mention is that of Stephen Smith. I covered some of the recent murder updates on our Patreon, but tonight I wanted to share an update on the investigation into Stephen Smith's uh, death. Chris, as we mentioned on the Patreon episode, Stephen was found in the middle of the road three miles from where his car ran out of gas, even though the family's attorney has come forward um, and said 
that the car, they don't believe the car was actually out of gas the night that he was killed. At first, they classified the death as a hit and run, but evidence suggests that Stephen may have either been killed somewhere else and placed in the middle of the road, or someone murdered him right where he was found. They even said maybe a car's window may have struck him, right? Going, because he had to, he had to be, if he was hit while walking, he was walking in the middle you of the mean road. a car mirror? Yeah, what'd I say? Car oh, window? Yeah. Sorry, yes, car mirror. But... He wouldn't have been walking on the side did, of the road. Did like nobody a typical... ever think to look at the gauge on the car to see if it actually was out of gas? Well, that's why I think that they have finally come forward. I mean, I don't know. You know, I sometimes I wonder, Chris, with some of these cases, what is taking so long for this stuff? Where's the car? Whatever happened to the car? I don't know where the car that's is. What I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it was in evidence. They towed no, the car. No, I just I thought I the mean, first thing whenever we first even started looking at this stuff is that supposedly he ran out of gas, but did anybody ever look at the gas gauge, see if he was actually out of gas? I don't know. Did they take the keys out of his pocket and go start the car? I don't you know. You have to run out. Of, you mean, what if it had a full tank? I don't know. I'm not yeah, sure what know. they actually did with the like, car. You, it's kind of hard to... I mean, you have to drive it around until the gas ran. Well, I mean, like I said, a family spokesperson has come forward and said that they that the car they don't believe the car was out of gas. No, I mean, I just that to me that would you have know? been such an easy thing to um, determine right off the bat. Uh, so I mentioned at first his death was classified as a hit and run, but evidence suggests that Stephen May, um, like I like I said, could have been killed somewhere else. Was he killed on the spot? What they do know is that he wasn't walking on the side of the road like a normal person would be in the middle of the night and be hit and then knocked into the middle of the road because there was no evidence of that. There was also no debris or anything around him that would show a car tail light. It was also front cl- light. clean. He didn't have any tire That's right. or nothing. Didn't look like he had been tussled on the road. He just had a, a major blunt force trauma injury to his head. Yes. And at first they thought it was a bullet or a gunshot wound, but there was no bullet found. There was no bullet casing found. Nothing, no debris is found near his body. Um, and his and his mother and family said he, if he would have walked, they think he would have cut through the woods because it would have been faster. And this is very late at night. It's very dark. And I just don't, they just don't think he was, he would have walked this far, Chris, three miles. And guess what? We talked about on our Patreon episode, where was the, where were, where was the phone? Cause we got, we couldn't remember if it was on him in the car. I knew they had found it. I just didn't know where Chris, it was in his pocket. It was in his pocket and no, and, and nobody and, and anyone close to him said he made no attempt to call them for help. So you have your phone and you're going to choose to walk Instead of calling someone to come and get you, it to and he's 19 years old, that makes no sense to me at all. Um, Stephen Smith's case, Chris, got renewed attention in 2021 while they were investigating the death of Maggie and Paul Murdaugh. After Murdaugh was convicted this past month of the murder of his wife and son. The Smith family, Chris, started a GoFundMe to raise the money to have Stephen's body exhumed because they believe the Murdoch family was involved in his death. Yes. They end up raising $100,000 in a very short amount of time um, to help Stephen's case. To cover the 
exhumation mm-hmm. costs. Mm-hmm. And, and and their goal was only 15,000. And this was, um, you know, this is just, I just think this is wonderful. You know, people helping and, you know, people you'll never, ever meet helping. I, I think it's great. So, so he, his body was exhumed and now back in his resting place. So over the last few days, um, they th- have thanked everyone for their support um, and their continued fight for justice. They called the second autopsy a success. So, um, and Chris, this is officially a homicide investigation. They have classified it as a homicide investigation. They are very confident coming out of this autopsy that they have the evidence that they were looking for when they decided to exhume the body in the first place. That is the vibe I get. Um, hearing some of this come out of the family. Well, and the shame is that they, it, why they didn't treat it that way before. You know, well, we talked about on the Patreon episode that the Murdoch name was mentioned f- over 40 times while people were being questioned about Stephen's death, but not one Murdoch was actually no, I know. spoken they, they to, had right? That, that highway patrolman who was trying to um, raise all those questions too and interviewing people and mm-hmm. uh, just mm-hmm. was like why they were turning a blind eye, you know? Um, well, interesting. Sandy Smith, Stephen Smith's mother, she's been very vocal about this, Chris. She thought it was strange that Alex Murdoch called her. He reached out to her and offered his services for representation after her son's death. She thought, that's strange. Why would I need representation? And Chris, something came to my head when I read this. We know guilty people sometimes like to throw themselves in the middle of investigations. They sometimes... Yeah, this is the uncle, right? No, Alex, Alec Murdaugh is the... No, that, that's, that's the guy who was in prison for killing his, his wife and, and son. No, I know, but I thought his... Um... His brother, because I know he tried to represent those two, two brothers when the um, mm-hmm. oh, I don't oh yeah, say, when the when the maid I don't want to mm-hmm. say maid, but I thought it was I thought the Clinton. uncle was attempting to represent um, Stephen Smith's family as well too. But well, I, it sounds like I'm mistaken about that. Well, no, I think Alec Murdoch made the first call, and I definitely think that wasn't the one and only conversation that was had with Stephen Smith's mother. Um, her her first initial instinct was. Like, why is that? Why is he calling me? And I mean, Chris, this is very soon after her son's death. And, and to call the mother and ask her if she wants the representation. And, you know, they always say, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. You know, was this was this a way for Alec Murdoch to be the, the eyes and ears of what is happening in Stephen's investigation by representing the mother and give and maybe getting information from her? I mean, I think he just thought people were stupid. I mean, that's kind of what I feel like this guy was doing. And that, Chris, I find that very unusual. I, I find that a very unusual call to make and to someone and to a grieving mother so soon after her son's death. It, it's a weird move. Yeah, it's kind of going out of the way. To- yeah, I'm not buying the Good Samaritan, right? Like the Good Samaritan Act. I mean, he's a convicted embezzler and liar and murderer. So, you know. I think his intentions were always not for everyone else, but just for himself. So I find that very suspicious that he called her. Uh, honey, they're now looking at evidence on the phone and the iPad of Stephen Smith. 
So, and when we did our Patreon episode, we couldn't remember, we get these brain farts sometimes <laughs> and uh, we couldn't remember where Stephen's phone was found. So I had mentioned earlier, it was found in his pocket, Yes, but they just now cracked it open. Like now they're in it. They got as of March 23rd, I believe mm-hmm. they, they have now got into the phone and now they are trying to get into the iPad. That's good. Yeah. They want to see if there is some sort of trace of who he was seeing or talking to. Um, but they are, they feel very good and confident that police are going to uncover some things, maybe getting into his phone. Great. Uh, now I also want to remember Chris, what his mom said about, um, him being skittish and having the phone in his pocket. He's three miles from his car. He makes zero attempt to call anyone. Um, I'm so glad they're investigating this as a homicide. I believe Stephen Smith got in a car with someone he knew or multiple people he knew. Uh, there was no debris found, like we mentioned, around the body. Um, I don't think a vehicle struck him. The, the The medical examiner, when he first looked at this body and the autopsy was being done, he did not believe this is what what occurred. So when that first hit and run was put on the autopsy report, there was someone that came in and said, nope, I don't think this is right. There's nothing that's showing he's actually, there was no internal bleeding, nothing that would show that he actually got got hit um, by the car. Um, and again, this is a 19 year old kid. Is he going to go walk three miles when he has a phone in his pocket? And I mean, it just, it seems a pretty uncommon thing to do. I mean, I think any person with common sense <clears throat> would call for help. I would agree with that. And not just try to, to walk home. Honey, that concludes tonight's episode. If you want to see pictures related to these cases, you can find them on our Instagram and Facebook pages. So that was our updates episode for this week. Um, We are going to be doing the case of Cherry Walker. That is going to be coming out on Wednesday. Chris, this is a really disturbing. I know you haven't heard of this case, but um, it's a, it's kind of a, it's a rough one, but we'll, uh, but important because, um, the person who committed this crime is actually a, one of um, only just a few females sitting on death row in Texas. So we'll jump into that on Wednesday. So until Looking next time, friends. It. Yeah. Until next time, friends. Stay safe. Have fun. And cheers to next time. Cheers, everybody. <laughs>